Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Tixam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Compassionate Communication by Lama Adam Berner. The Buddha established the equality of all beings by our common need to be happy and avoid suffering. If that's true, why does it seem like we have so much to argue about? With the cultivation of mindfulness and patient inquisitiveness, we can reveal the universal needs underneath our words and those of others, developing a practical means for compassionate communication and common ground. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texam Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. So thanks for making the trip, driving through the snow, um, going slowly, taking care of everyone on the road. Um, I called someone on the way in to ask them if they could do me a favor on the way here, and they were like, I'm turning around and going home. The roads are bad. So I was like, uh-oh. But it wasn't that bad. So, Plus, I'm from Cleveland, and you know. <laughs> so this topic today, um, I'm teaching this because I heard the inclusion and engagement groups doing a book study on this book called Say What You Mean by Oren J. Sofer. And it's a book I really love. And this has given me a chance to dive into it even deeper. And um, I really appreciate that opportunity. That is, um, as you've probably heard before, when you teach something, you actually end up learning a lot more, I think, than anyone else can. So I thank you for the opportunity to really dive into this uh, in preparation for this talk. So I'm really going to focus just on one piece of, of this book today, but hopefully it will get you excited. And if you can't read the book, it'll still give you something you can use. And this falls, I think, into the category. I heard somebody once use the phrase, psychologizing the teachings. And I, I, at the time, I wondered if that was like a negative thing. Um, and I feel like this kind of maybe applies to this kind of a teaching. But um, I don't think it's a negative thing at all, because we can talk about our bodhisattva aspirations, aspirations for awakening and taking care of all sentient beings and all those things. But what happens in like those real, you know, heated negative moments in our life when it's the hardest to remember and also the most important to remember those aspirations. And so I think that these kinds of practical teachings that we can actually, you know, work with beforehand and then apply in the moment when it's just a down-to-earth conflict that we're having, those are, in a lot of ways, are the most profound, I think, because they're going to be the most impactful. So. I think that this is as legit a Buddhist topic as anything, communication, you know, and doing it compassionately. So I found a note this week that I, I wrote while I was in my three-year retreat. Um, I was looking for this because I didn't take a lot of like notes or journals or anything in the three-year retreat, but this was something I wrote down for myself. Um, and the words are kind of hopeful and happy and, um, maybe even a little pious or something, but I'm sure this was happening because I was having some conflict with somebody and having a difficult time. Uh, so I'll 
share this to kind of frame the, the idea for today. I said, uh, I realize today that everybody in every interaction I ever have is helping me to achieve my bodhisattva aspiration for the benefit of all beings. Whether our interaction is verbal or nonverbal, whether I perceive it as positive or negative, polite or rude, regardless, everyone is always giving me the information I need to make them happy. And I wanna make all beings happy, so how fortunate this is. And what a source of happiness it can be for me too that they are always conveying how I can make them happy and ultimately accomplish my bodhisattva aspiration. That's what everyone is doing. Don't forget. Spoiler alert, I've forgotten a lot of times. <laughs> but I do remember sometimes and gradually more and more. And that's really what the path is, and just increasing the amount of times we can remember and act in the ways that align with our aspirations. We know what the goal is. Like The goal would be to always remember that, but we're somewhere before that goal. And so working with that uh, in a compassionate way is, is so important. So let's say the prayer of refuge. So let's say this once in Tibetan, once in English, and once in Tibetan. Oh, Sangye Chidang Suki Chodnamla Janchu Padu Dagni Kyabsuchi Daki Jin Suki Pe Sunamki Drola Penchir Sangye Drupasho. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent. I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. O Sangye Chidang Suki Chodnamla Janchu Padu Dagni Kyapsuji Daki Jin Suki Pe Sunamki and I'll say a short prayer of my own. O Palden Sawe Lama Rinpoche, Daki Chiwa Pede Tenjula, Kadren Chimpogone Jesunte, Kusun Tuki Mudrup Saduso. All right, I'd also like to say this one together because this is the aspiration prayer of the four immeasurables. This also gets at really the, the key of our topic here today. So, may all sentient beings have happiness in the causes of happiness. May they be free from suffering in the causes of suffering. May they never be separated from the highest bliss, which is without suffering. And may they come to rest in great equanimity, which is free from attachment and aversion, free from near and far. So this gets at um, what we're really talking about today, which is the universal need to be happy that we all share. That's the foundation of equality in the Buddhist context, that we all want to be happy. Nobody wants to suffer. We have that in common, all of us. And there's a whole bunch of other needs that can appear on top of that underlying universal need. 
but um, that universal need to be happy is what's motivating all of them. So this book, Say What You Mean, is a kind of an expansion of a, a much older book, like, you know, I shouldn't say that in Buddhist context, that could be hundreds of years, a couple decades earlier, um, a book called Nonviolent Communication by an author named Marshall Rosenberg. And he gave this incredible format for formulating nonviolent speech, right? So um, I'm just gonna give a quick overview of that. I'm not really teaching uh, NVC today, although you should have kind of what you need to get started here. So the format is saying an observation, then your feelings, then your needs, and then making a request. And there's potential pitfalls with each of these. So with our observations, they're objective and observable. They're not evaluations or judgments. So right from the beginning to me, this sounds super Buddhist, right? Because what we do is we tie up our judgments and our own ideas and experiences and project them onto what seems to be happening in the external world. So that's one of the first and most important things we do is try to make sure that we're at least being able to differentiate observable phenomena in our own projections. So that's the first step is making an observation that's objective and observable. Then feelings. Our feelings need to be emotions, like an actual emotion. They're not our thoughts. They're not, uh, and actually a good sign that you're, you're giving a thought is if it's preceded by like that or as. I feel that you're always, you know, that's not an emotion, that's a thought. So a good sign that you're not actually expressing an emotion is those like, that, or as. Uh, there are, it's also not what we think others are doing to us. So like an emotion is not, um, I feel attacked, you know, because that is saying what we think the other person is doing to us then we have needs. So because we have feelings, we then recognize that there's a reason we're having those feelings. And that reason is coming from the inside. It's not the other person that's making us mad. We have a need, and because that need isn't being met, we're feeling a certain way. And needs are universal. They're also positive qualities. Needs are not what we don't want. Needs are what we do want. And they're also not strategies which we can tell because if we're talking about a need that's tied to a specific person, place, time, object, or action, that's a strategy. That's not a need. And then the final step is making a request. And requests are questions, which means we're ready to hear no. Requests are specific. And they're in the positive, asking to do something rather than asking not to do something. So they're not demands. That's kind of the key here. We're actually open to hearing either answer to our question. Uh, they're also not vague. So that, that's one of the key parts of trying to formulate a good request. And they're not, as I said, in the negative. So this is a really kind of a profound practice all on its own to kind of integrate this. But I wanted to give you a basic overview. And today we're going to focus primarily on needs. And um, interesting thing about this book, I think, is this author, Oren J. Sofer, wrote this book. He very briefly uses the word Buddhist, maybe just a couple times in the book, because he was a Buddhist 
monastic for a while and is a teacher in the Vipassana tradition. But he so skillfully wrote a book without talking about Buddhism constantly. But it's clearly rooted in what he's learned and taught. And I think that's brilliant because that means it's getting to a much wider audience. And it also, I think, accords with what we usually say as a summary of the Buddhist teaching. Do no harm, practice only virtue, tame your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. That last line, this is the teaching of the Buddha, really indicates that anything that accords with that aligns with the teaching of the Buddha. And anything that doesn't accord with that, do no harm, practice only virtue, tame your mind, can't be a teaching of the Buddha. So I like that one because there's so many concepts and ideas and lists, even just in this talk today, but definitely in Buddhism in general. So if you can remember that one, that sums it all up. Do no harm, practice only virtue, tame your mind. But I wanna start, as I do a lot of these talks, framing with the Four Noble Truths, because that's the Buddha's first teaching. And everything in the Dharma is said to be some kind of exposition of that teaching. And a really good way to apply the Dharma throughout our life is to contemplate the Four Noble Truths in the context of our everyday practical interactions and things we do. Um, it's definitely the case that our formal practice is important. But how we're integrating that, how that's finding its way into our, those moments that aren't like constructed to be Buddhist, you know, or constructed to be like religion, when we're like on our cushion with our incense burning and the nice paintings and all of that. We need to be able to feel the Dharma and see it working throughout our whole day. And so contemplating the Four Noble Truths is a, is a, a really essential way of doing that. And they are, uh, the truth of suffering, which is that suffering is a part of life. Suffering here means also like discomfort. It means everything from like the slightest discomfort up to like the most horrible things. Uh, as you can imagine, the slightest discomfort happens a lot more often. So it's, it's actually a really good way to contemplate suffering because we have those little minor discomforts a whole lot more often. Uh, the second truth is the truth of the cause of suffering. And that is that suffering um, is caused by attachment. And we're talking primarily here about attachment to the self or the idea of the self, self-fixation, which is where we fixate on a limited kind of frozen idea of who we are and also on our own limited relative viewpoint. And then the third truth is the truth of the end of suffering, which just simply follows, right? If there's suffering and suffering has a cause, if we get rid of the cause, we can experience the end of suffering. And then the fourth truth is the truth of the path. There's a path to do that. And that's all the teachings of the Buddha. That's do no harm, practice only virtue, tame your mind. So the to-do list of the Four Noble Truths is we need to understand suffering. Suffering is what is to be understood. And other than suffering, the Buddha said, there's nothing needs to be understood. I think that's an important one because we do kind of get hung up on analyzing. I think a lot of us do. And so it's good sometimes to remember that the Buddha said the only thing we need to understand is suffering. That's what needs to be understood. Other than that, there's nothing that needs to be understood. Um, we need to abandon the cause of suffering. That's the to do with the cause of suffering. That's what's to be abandoned, attachment. And we need to achieve the end of suffering. Other than the end of suffering, there's nothing that needs to be achieved. And we need to rely upon the path. So other than the path, there's nothing that needs to be relied upon. Now, 
where we make mis our main mistake, I think, is that we're constantly trying to abandon the suffering. So we want suffering to end, but we habitually forget to abandon its cause. And instead, because of our attachment to ourselves and to comfort, we try to abandon the suffering. So in other words, though we may know that attachment is the cause of suffering, we take most of our actions out of attachment to abandoning even the slightest whiff of suffering. So how are we supposed to understand suffering if we're repeatedly abandoning it in every possible way and just recreating it? So through our fixation on trying to abandon suffering, which when you think about it is most of what we do all day long, um, over and over we're recreating it. We're literally creating it over and over. And that's samsara when we talk about samsara or the cycle of suffering. That's it, you know. And one of our primary ways of seeking to abandon suffering and therefore losing the opportunity to understand it is distraction. Distraction is our go-to. You know, distraction is a form of ignorance. You know, it's kind of leading us into ignorance every time we distract ourselves. And the main kind of distraction for us is telling stories. Um, telling stories is one of the main ways we distract ourselves from the kind of um, understanding that could actually help us to achieve the end of suffering. And we only tell our stories based on our own relative viewpoint. So there's, you can see the self-fixation in that too. And these stories also always have us right in the middle. Like we're in the center, everything else is revolving around us, and everyone in some way or another is expected to serve us or gratify us. And that's actually where the concept of the mandala comes from. It's a seeming circle and we're in the middle. And our relative view from that central seeming relative viewpoint um, can be one of ignorance and self-fixation or it can be one of wisdom and compassion. And a lot of times it's flipping and alternating. I think for most of us, it's mostly ignorance and self-fixation, but we have those really wonderful moments where it kind of shifts and we get the wisdom and compassion side of it. So based on which of those viewpoints we have, ignorance or self-fixation, ignorance and self-fixation, or wisdom and compassion, we generate what the whole rest of the mandala looks like. If it's ignorance and self-fixation, we have a mandala that's confusing and threatening and competitive. If we have a viewpoint of wisdom and compassion, we have a pure realm full of opportunities and beauty and connection and collaboration. And that's what we see in like this kind of a mandala. This would be like the, the enlightened view of one's mandala. This, in this case, it's the mandala of Chinrezig. This is one of the sand mandalas, if you've ever seen him make those. So this reminded me of um, my friend Lama Mitchell, who I have a podcast with, um, and he's a great teacher. And he brought up to me once during a difficult time in, in my retreat, he brought up that this idea of like how we all have this view, you know, where we're in the center and everyone's floating around us. And he said, sometimes you have to remember that you're not the center of everyone else's mandala. And that's come in pretty handy for me sometimes. So, Sofer gives uh, three steps to effective communication. They're uh, lead with presence, come from curiosity and care, 
and focus on what matters. And we're going to start with leading with presence. So to really be present, we have to be awake and engaged without distraction, without fixation. Presence lays the groundwork for connection with our people we're you know, maybe talking with, the people around us, but also just with our environment in general. And one of the fundamental ways we begin to cultivate presence is with mindfulness. Uh, in the Buddhist context, that begins with the formal practice of calm abiding meditation, which is taught every Sunday at 10 a.m. downstairs. So that's how we formally practice it and prepare. But what if we don't have a cushion with us and we need to cultivate some kind of presence? Um, what if it's right in the middle of a challenging situation? Uh, I want to lead a short practice that he offers. This is called grounding in the body. And I want to mention that if any of this leaves you feeling activated in a way that's unhelpful, um, you're welcome to place your attention somewhere else other than in the body, on sounds or a mantra or a visualization, um, shift in your seat, you know, whatever you need. But so this practice of grounding in the body is, is a mindfulness practice, but we're working with the several different anchors in the, in the body. So let's take a minute to get a posture that's upright, straight back, open heart is a good short, simple way of thinking about posture. And start by uh, feeling any sensation of weight or gravity in your seat. Just gently place your attention on that sense of heaviness in your body. You might notice your body's contact with the chair or the cushion any hardness or give in the surface you're sitting on. When you notice your attention has wandered, just gently let go and bring it back to the feeling of weight or heaviness in your body. Next, bring your attention to the upper body and see how your torso rises from your waist and pelvis. Imagine a line running down the middle of your torso, halfway between your front and back, in the middle of the left and right sides of your body, and place your attention on that line. And last, let's try bringing our attention to the breath. Let your attention rest with the sensations of breathing in and out. No need to block out other sensations, sounds, or thoughts. Just tune in to the steady rhythm of breathing. Okay, thank you. So those are just three uh, methods of grounding in the body. And the idea here is we can do a formal practice of it when we're meditating, but we also need to be able to apply it during the day. 
So one example he gives is in, mo in transition. So like walking, driving, things like that. In that type of a setting, we place our attention, but it's a little bit less of our attention because there's other things we're doing. And then the third way you can do it is literally in the moment of a conversation. Like literally in that moment where we start to spin off into our stories and our distractions, we can bring our attention to one of those places in the body. And so in that case, it's not gonna be very much of our attention and it's probably gonna feel a little weird and challenging when we start trying it in the beginning. But it's super helpful to, to have some kinds of, of means to build presence in the midst of something that's emotionally charged. So the first part here of leading with presence is grounding. And then the second part he talks about is the power of pace, using pauses for mindfulness and balance. And this really means taking the time to pause if you want, you know, even asking, can I take a moment to pause? Like it, it a lot of times, I know just in general, like I, I feel the need to keep talking, you know, even if it's not emotionally charged. I think a lot of us have a tendency with other people to feel like you have to keep filling the space with information, you know, but when the conversation is difficult, a lot of times it's really important to, to take these pauses and take a breath. I want to read something he said here that kind of relates to these two. This section is called Riding the Waves. He says, feeling activated is completely natural. It's ethically neutral and inherently benign. Mindfulness doesn't aim to suppress activation or achieve some imaginary neutral state. The goal is to become aware and adept at riding life's waves. We each already know something about how to ride the waves and handle activation without reacting impulsively. Have you ever felt the inner agitation of wanting to say something but needing to wait for the right moment to interject? That's an experience of arousal. Anytime you relate to that internal pressure wisely, taking a breath, shifting your weight, making a mental note, you're handling the activation. Doing it for even a split second can yield more choice about what to say and when. In effect, awareness lends the ability to steer. It is through mindfulness that we can pause, track the reactivity in our body, and ride the wave rather than be capsized by it. Your ability to ride a wave of activation depends on your capacity to tolerate discomfort. In contemplative practice, every time you observe an itch a knee or back pain without immediately jerking, you are developing the inner balance to respond rather than react. If the wave is too big, step back, feel the energy in your body and allow it to dissipate. The paired practices of pausing and grounding are especially helpful in difficult conversations. Pausing anything from a micro pause to a full breath to a break in the conversation creates the space to recognize activation. Then grounding in the body provides an anchor to steady your attention instead of losing your center. And he suggests an exercise here that we're not gonna do, but I wanna just explain it quickly. He talks about when you notice arousal in conversation, sympathetic arousal, practice subtly pausing and grounding to track that activation. Use whatever methods you've found most helpful and authentic to pause. Take a deep breath, a gesture, or a verbal request. Choose a reference point for grounding awareness in your body 
gravity, the center line, the breath. Experiment with widening your attention by orienting to sounds or the space around you. So those are ways that we can lead with presence in the moment, just some of the ways. Another good thing to do here is when we start to connect and get used to this idea of, of sympathetic arousal is to learn how that feels in the body, like for us, you know, like what are our physical signs of arousal. One of the reasons I think this book is so cool is because he puts together mindfulness, nonviolent communication, and somatics. So it's also a lot about recognizing signs in our body. So now the second step here is coming from care and curiosity. And he has a great quote in here, which is, when we are triggered, we are all beginners. So I know a lot of us are hard on ourselves about our practice and the ways that we react out in the world um, when things get hard. But the fact is that in a lot of situations, there's so much habit energy behind what's happening that it's, it's pretty impossible that we would act, react any other way in the moment. And that's why we have to work so hard at preparing and practicing and learning techniques that we can actually start to alter this habit energy that we've been building for this lifetime at least, right? Probably many lifetimes. And then we have this bodhisattva aspiration to be of benefit to all beings and bring them all to perfect enlightenment. When we have the slightest disagreement with others, the first thing we do is we shift to blame and, and often manipulation. But this never works. And we can think about this from our own side. You know, how does it feel to be told what's wrong with you? <laughs> or to be yelled at or commanded to do something, you know? These are things that probably haven't worked with us in the past, so we should have some inkling of the idea that's probably not gonna work with other people either. So we have this blame problem in our conversations and in our communication. We think every discomfort we have is someone else's fault. And I know for me, it's also like something else's fault. Like, do you ever notice that when like you stub your toe or something? And I, I catch myself thinking like, how can I make this thing somehow personified so I can blame it? <laughs> you know? I mean, talk about ignorance, you know? Like I actually wanna blame inanimate objects for my discomfort. So this habit of it, when we meet any discomfort, reaching out to blame, is um, it's a destructive habit and it's a story that we tell ourselves. And so it's something we need to increase awareness of. We need to wake up to it. Um, that's a, what Buddha means. Bud, the root of, of Buddha means to wake up. So that's what we're talking about here, you know? We can look at nice paintings and think of it in this religious context, but what we're really talking about is just waking up to the way things are. And that's one of the things we can wake up to, is this habit of, of shifting into blame with every little discomfort we have. So next he starts to talk about how view, our view determines our intention. And like we saw in the example of the mandala, our view can shift our entire experience. So to look at that in greater detail, he provides this graph where he says, he shows how our views determine our intentions. Our intentions shape our experiences, and then our experiences confirm and solidify our views. 
and so spins the wheel of samsara. Or not. So if we have views of win-lose, right and wrong, um, conflict is dangerous or a problem, or when we see others as objects in relation to our needs, inevitably we end up with intentions to attack or demand, protect and defend, blame and judge, coerce, manipulate, and control. And those type of intentions lead to experiences of fear and anxiety and anger and aggression and shutting down and freezing, judgment, rejection, disconnection, and alienation. He says, when we're stuck in habitual conditioned views of conflict, our attention becomes narrowly focused on a way of seeing that is rooted in negative experiences from our past. Our whole nervous system enters a familiar pattern based on our ingrained views and corresponding intentions. We feel anxious, aggressive, or frozen. We may go on the offense, backpedal, or zone out and pretend nothing is happening. We easily lose touch with our deeper values, the importance of a relationship, and our capacity to see things from multiple perspectives. The humanity of the other person can become obscured by our thoughts, beliefs, and emotions. So shifting our view can change our entire, uh, can change our intentions and our experience. An intention is so pivotal. The intention to understand one another, to come from curiosity and care is so pivotal. And I believe that is the bodhisattva aspiration. So as you can see here, views, if we take a view of win-win, or we start to recognize that conflict is natural, that's actually an opportunity for learning. When we realize that we share universal needs, and that others have inherent value, independent of our own needs, then we start to develop these intentions to inquire and to listen, and to care, and to collaborate and connect. And that brings us experiences of intimacy and safety and belonging understanding and mutual respect, creativity and synergy. So connecting with curiosity and care, curiosity is, is presence. Curiosity is awareness. Curiosity is openness. Curiosity is mindfulness. And care is compassion. It's love. You know, the wish for all sentient beings to be happy and for no beings to suffer, for them to create the causes of happiness and not create the causes of suffering. So this is a real world expression of mindfulness and compassion. You know, the two practices that we see are like a two wings of a bird, you know, with, with a mindfulness practice and a compassion practice, you can travel the whole path, you know, fly all the way there. So this also reminded me of Kempo Carter Rinpoche's teaching that I taught on here about a year ago, um, when, uh, when he said, best is to think others have good intentions. If you can always do that, it is the best protection from giving rise to negative emotions. If you always assume bad intentions, you are self-defeating. The second best is to remain neutral, 
All is like the wind, the play of illusion. This is how to protect yourself. If no negative thought arises in your mind, that is how to protect yourself. It is all about love and compassion. That's what our founder, Kim Carter Rinpoche, my teacher said. So there's some key principles here to remember. The first is that the less blame and criticism that we have in our communication, the easier it's gonna be for others to hear us. And the flip side of that is the more mutual understanding we can create, the easier it is to work together to find creative solutions. So to make that transition of view from the win-lose view to the win-win view, um, to come with curiosity and care, we need to continually recognize that everything we do, we do to meet a need. And that's the crux of what we're talking about today. It's coming to this recognition that everything we do, we do to meet a need. In particular, we talked about how we all have this need to be happy. That's a universal need. That underlies everything we do. So we, when we can recognize that universal need, not just in ourselves, but in everybody else, our view can begin to shift. And that brings us to step three, which is focusing on what matters. And in this case, we're talking about training our attention. That's as Buddhist a thing as you can really say, right? Training our attention to identify human needs and values. I want to read another section here. So he says, needs are the core values that motivate our actions. They're what matter most, the root reasons for why we want what we want. We can think of needs as facets of our humanity. They are universal, positive qualities that animate a flourishing human life. We all share the same needs, though we feel them with varying degrees of intensity and have different strategies to meet them. Anything that's tied to a specific person, place, time, object, or action is a strategy. Some strategies succeed, some do not. Some are wise, some are unwise. Any action can be understood as an attempt to meet many needs. We take a walk for health, relaxation, or to clear our head. Similarly, there are many strategies to meet a given need. We might relax by talking to a friend, going out, or doing yoga. So there are, we talk about the universal need for happiness, then there's all kinds of ways that that becomes other, more differentiated needs. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs is one way that we can break this down you know, into a bunch of different needs that all arise from that need to be happy. And there's a much more detailed list in Sofer's book that um, I'm gonna show you here. I know it's probably not readable, but I just wanna, if anything, show you um, the breadth of needs that we can talk about here. And our experience of all of these needs differs person to person. They come in different patterns and different intensities for each of us. Um, but we've all got them, and we can learn to, ref, uh, to recognize them and to differentiate between them. And he suggests 
doing this as like as starting to see life through the lens of needs. And I'm going to read another section of what he wrote here. So this is this book is uh, loaded with little practices, little insets of, of real practices you can do on your own time. So that's another reason I like this book, because it has not only just stuff to read, but stuff that you can do. So this practice, is, he's describing this as a, a practice. He says, to familiarize yourself with this way of paying attention, dedicate a period of time, an hour, a day, or more, to practice viewing yourself and others through the lens of human needs. As your day unfolds, consider what needs you are trying to meet with your choices. As you observe others, consider what matters to this person, what might be motivating them. Someone getting on a bus, agitated on a phone call, waving goodbye, what needs are they trying to meet? Extend this inquiry to conversations you overhear, coworkers chatting, the news, and so on. Behind each statement, what matters? What might this person need? When is it easiest to identify possible needs? When is it more challenging? Notice the effect of attending to your own and others' experience in this way. So that's seeing life through the lens of needs. And in order to do that on our own as like a personal practice, he has another uh, recommended method here. He talks about um, finding something where, uh, finding a situation where something didn't meet your needs. And it's really important with every practice that, that we do to like, when we're examining a situation in life, like something that really happened, to find something that's kind of low stakes. Because these are, we need to start lifting weights with the little weights, you know? So like you don't wanna pick like the most difficult thing and start trying to work with that. So you pick like a low stakes situation where your needs weren't met. And you identify what you want, like what, what was the thing you actually wanted. And then when you figure that out, you inquire, why is that important? What matters about that to us? And if you had it, then what would you have? So this is a way of investigating our needs. And then what happens is when we answer that question, then we ask the same question again. Well, what matters about that? You know, why would I want that? So we're really trying to get down through what's probably a layer of strategy to the actual universal need underneath. And he says, you continue asking that question until you arrive at something that feels like a core value or need. And he says, you may feel settled or clear inside when you identify what matters most to you. Shift your attention to the need itself as a universal facet of being human, independent of the situation. Where in your body do you know that this is something important? something you want, not just for yourself, but for everyone. Can you appreciate the beauty and dignity of this need? Can you sense its innate value? And what does that feel like? So connecting with our needs connects us with the underlying forces that drive our actions and with everyone as they're, they're universal. And so these are steps to recognizing needs. Also, it may give us some sort of sense of physical relief 
when we recognize a need that we're experiencing in ourselves or others. There may be some physical sign of that. Another key here is that needs are stated in the positive. Needs are what I do want, not what I don't want. So as you can see, some real practice has to go into being able to identify needs. Um, one of the things that's required is we need to expand our vocabulary of needs. We need to be able to start to tune into the, the wide palette of needs there are and be able to differentiate between them. So even just looking, like when that list I showed you earlier is actually an exercise. You know, the exercise is going through a kind of exhaustive list of needs and trying to see how they feel and which ones you connect the most with, you know, or feel need to be met the most. So really trying to expand our vocabulary of needs. And we also need to train uh, to see life through the lens of needs. And that means sometimes shifting our attention back and forth between our needs and our strategies. So in a situation, kind of placing our attention on the strategy and then placing our attention on the need and being able to shift skillfully back and forth so we can tell and are familiar with the difference. He says the more we're able to differentiate between our strategies and our needs, the more clarity and the more choice we have. And I love this one. He says, seeing needs is a doorway to compassion. And when I read that, I was like, I know what our next Dharma talk is. That's it. <laughs> so he talks here, too, about how it can be uncomfortable to talk about our needs. It can feel um, a little vulnerable or awkward um, when we discuss our needs with others. But we can become better at determining the amount of vulnerability uh, that we can foster or the amount of vulnerability that's appropriate in a certain situation. Because when we kind of titrate that to the right amount, it's going to create a lot of understanding and collaboration. So it will feel somewhat vulnerable at first, but this is one of those situations where leaning into that slight discomfort is actually going to open things up a lot and give us a lot more spaciousness and a lot more sense of collaboration. And probably connection, you know, because everybody, like we always try to hide the things about us that seem a little negative or not perfect, but like everybody's got that stuff, you know, and when we can share it, it just gives so much more common ground. And he talks about how eventually we can transform our experience of vulnerability from one of discomfort into one of clarity and dignity. And that's what we talk about that when we talk about bodhisattvas, right? Bodhisattvas are uh, like warriors of enlightenment. You know, there's this uh, aspect of courageousness to a bodhisattva. And courage comes from, you know, some vulnerability and then still going forward and doing what needs to be done. There's really no situation of courage that doesn't have some aspect of vulnerability to it. And so this idea of transforming our experience of vulnerability into one of clarity and dignity is a great example of transforming our self-centered, self-fixated view into that of an enlightened being, you know? And we can access that now. Because remember, the other side of this is we're already Buddha, you know? We, we have to try to remember that and see that and go through these, this process to kind of reveal that 
but it's also here right now. So sometimes we have to kind of make a balance between the fact that we're working with methods, but we can't forget that we're also, it's already here. It's not separate from us. So we can be bodhisattvas. And the beauty here of needs is that when we think only of our own needs um, and whether or not they're met and by how much, uh, this limits our ability to connect with others and to connect with our spiritual life. So when we think only of our own needs and whether or not they're met and by how much, this limits our ability to connect with others in our spiritual life. That kind of a view keeps us focused on the self and it keeps us at the mercy of all of life's changes. And this is not a path of inner transformation. That is not the Dharma path. But we mature our relationship with our needs when we can increase our ability to be at peace with our unmet needs. And with that you know, feeling, being able to place our attention on that feeling of an unmet need without going into stories and distractions and blame. We can bring empathy and compassion to our unmet needs and hold them in our awareness. That can be an anchor for mindfulness. That's taught many places, you know. So instead of fixating on the satisfaction of a need, we can place our attention gently on the need itself without regard to any of the circumstances surrounding it. And this, I think, is neat. Another thing that's neat about this is that needs are both deeply personal and they're universal. So there's an aspect that feels like it's ours in our own situation, and then there's this aspect of pervasiveness for all beings. And I feel like that is the clarity and dignity right there, you know, that sense of deeply personal and universal. So when we relate to needs, only in terms of whether they're gratified or not, we're increasing our attachment. Back to the Four Noble Truths, we're increasing our suffering. When we can relate to needs as universal, appreciating them for what they are, we increase our commitment and ability to meet the needs of both ourselves and others. So to jump back, to NBC now, since we've gone through all of this. So that's one aspect of, of the um, nonviolent communication um, series of steps, the four steps. Uh, those were expressing an observation, not an evaluation. So if somebody's, uh, like you wouldn't say, you're always late. You would say, the last three days you've said you'd be home at five and you got home at six. It's something we can all agree on. The second step is a feeling, you know, one of our own feelings, not a description of what we think the other person is doing. So we name our feeling. Then we tie that feeling to a need that we have. Our own, it's our need that is bringing about the feelings, not the other person. It's our own need and our own sensation of that need not being met. He talks in this book about how needs are kind of like a smoke detector. You know, it's like, you don't need, or sorry, emotions are like a smoke detector. Like, you don't need to, like, be upset that the smoke detector's going off. They're telling you you need to check something, you know? Like, that's a warning sign that something needs to be checked on, you know? And our feelings can be like that. So the needs are um, these universal needs. And so when we can connect our feelings to our own needs and actually be able to express it, then there should be some kind of common ground there. 
Like we should always be able to get behind anybody's needs if we're really talking about a need. If we find ourselves not being able to support somebody when they express a need, we're probably not actually talking about a need yet. So our needs should be something that we all have. So we have observations, feelings, needs, and then the last is making a request, not a demand. And this method is really good for the way we talk, you know, and being able to say things to other people, and it takes practice, and it's clunky, you know? Like, I mean, I've been trying it. Um, luckily, I have a partner that we can do these things together. I mean, it's nice if you have people you can try this with, um, because it isn't the easiest thing. But even if you're on your own, you can still try to do it. Um, so it is helpful. And even to think afterwards, how could I have said that? Because there's lots of times where I say a thing and I like, I mean, I'm teaching this because I'm not good at compassionate communication, truth be told, you know? But like, I know sometimes after the fact, I'll think, wow, how could I have done that with, in a nonviolent way? You know, and that's maybe some of the most helpful stuff is looking back on something that I regretted the way I said it and trying to reformulate it in nonviolent communication and then try to do that the next time, you know, try to remember to do it in the moment. So it's good for the way we handle things, but it's, it's maybe even more important for being able to understand people who are talking to us in a potentially not, uh, you know, potentially violent way, you know, because most people probably don't know this method and are maybe not applying it, but we can hear these things in whatever they're saying to us. So we start to be able to hear in judgments and observation. You know, we start to be able to hear what we can kind of translate it, you know, as like, okay, what's the observation they're actually saying? You know, and when they blame us, it's say like, you make me feel like whatever, you know, they say a thought. We can start to try to figure out what their emotion is. Maybe we even ask, you know, are you feeling sad? Are you feeling lonely? You know, like we can check in to try to better understand them. And then try to figure out what the need is underlying whatever they're saying to us. And then when we get a demand, we can hear it as a request. We can try to hear it as a request. So this is super helpful both ways, you know, both the way we talk to others and the way we can hear other people. And just to wrap up, there's one, he has one paragraph in here that just bowled me over because it's just a perfect summation of all of this. He says, focus on what matters and keep your attention flexible. Instead of belaboring the story of what happened, listen for what matters to both of you. If you're hearing demands, internally translate them into requests and respond in a way that honors the other person's needs. When you can identify needs, you have more room to hear one another and think creatively about solutions. So that's really kind of the core of nonviolent communication. And uh, we have a little bit of time left, so if people have any questions, um, feel free to step up to the question mic, and I will do my best to, to answer. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, really appreciate the practicality of this talk. You know, it's like to, it's like applied Buddhism or something. You know? Yeah. Um, I have a couple comments. Uh, you were talking about suffering and translating that into what it feels like. I heard a translation of, of it as lack of satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And it, it really, really resonated with me because 
I found that that's really a lot of what I'm suffering, you know, like, well, that's not quite good enough or that's not quite right. And it was, uh, yeah. I, remember, I remember a story oh, a couple years ago when we were talking about the, the 99% and the 1%. They interviewed this woman who was in the 1%. She had a lot of anxiety. And they said, what's the problem? And she said, well, I'm in the bottom of the 1%. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's just, just no way to get yeah. satisfied, you know? <laughs> oh. And Je Jeff Bezos, you know, he got that, he thought he's going to get satisfied by building the biggest yacht in the world or something, and then he couldn't get it out from behind the bridge, <laughs> yeah, you know? Right. So, I mean, the guy just cannot get satisfied. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. uh, my other comment is, um, oh, guys, there was so much in that, in that book that you uh, revealed to us, but... Uh, one of the things that resonated with me was this things about recognizing our feelings, being in touch with our feelings. And, and the body is just communicating so much to us that it, uh, without having to use our brain, you know, yeah. it's, just, it's just coming out. And, and uh, I know for a long time I was completely unaware of that concept, but yeah. I've, I've gotten better at it and it's refreshing. So. But uh, there's so much, you know, we could have a conversation on that whole top on the whole uh, talk that you gave, but that was yeah. really... Well, and hopefully we will, because I think that if this book study happens, like, that would be great, because I think the idea is, like, we all read this and try to practice this here in this building, you know, uh -huh. like, so cool. that could be awesome, you know. But yeah, thank you for your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, let's um, say the prayer of dedication. And um, I want to say thanks again for our, uh, giving me the opportunity to, to look into this and share it with you. And um, I confess any errors I may have made. Um, they're my own. Uh, I also rejoice in um, all, the, the, all of your Dharma practice and all of the work of our teachers. And I request that all of our teachers and enlightened beings um, continue to teach and remain for a long time. And with that said, let's say the prayer of dedication in English. By this merit, may all attain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. The courageous Manjushri, who knows everything as it is, Samantabhadra, who also knows in the same way, and all the bodhisattvas, that I may follow in their path, I completely dedicate all this virtue. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk. <laughs>